the sermon series, Love Me, Love Me Not, spoken by Reverend Barbara Edinger. So uh, you have been together learning a lot about different kinds of love through this series, Love Me, Love Me Not. And I actually am learning about a different kind of love in my life that I've never experienced before. And that is what it's like to be loving a grandchild for the first time. So, woo! My, uh, my little Vicente Ernesto Ettinger Lopez lives in the south of Chile, and I am his proud avo. I am Portuguese, so he's going to, I don't know what he's going to call us. He'll make up his own name, right? He's only three months old. Uh, but learning to love in different ways brings new joys and new challenges, and we just love this little guy, my husband Jeff and I. Uh, he's a sweetie, and I miss him already. So there are all kinds of ways uh, to love. And you've been delving in, those of you who have been able to be part of the series. If you haven't, you should check out some of the past messages. I did that um, before coming, and they're great. So you've been talking about loving your neighbor. You've been talking about loving one another, loving the world, loving yourself, uh, loving your spouse, the poor, loving the foreigner, loving your church. Such a rich series. Today, um, we look at these and we know these aren't easy things to do, right? But we're going to kick it up another notch today, and we're going to talk about loving God. So loving people can be tough, but loving God, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but he's invisible. Yeah. How do we love God? I mean, he's straight up invisible, untouchable, immortal, and yet over and over and over again. The Bible commands us to love God, invites us, compels us, inspires us, woos us to love God. Love the Lord your God, says Deuteronomy 6.5, major command to the people of Israel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And this is just the most famous of the verses. There are literally dozens of them in the Bible. I find it challenging to love someone I can't see, I can't hear, I can't touch, I can't smell, I can't feel. It's just hard. So we're going to spend some time this morning thinking about what it might mean for us, mere flesh and blood mortals, to love an invisible, immortal God. So will you take a moment with me now and let's pray together and ask God into this conversation. Living God, we know you're there, but wow, is it hard sometimes to know you're there. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds and open our spirits to hear and see and experience you today and learn more what it means for us to love you. We need you to do this for us. Apart from you, we can't even love you, but you're here. So speak and move in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, three ways we're going to approach this this morning. We're going to think about 
and hear and experience together how loving God is responsive and holistic and costly. Loving God is responsive, holistic, and costly. And because everything is better in community and with a friend, we're going to make this journey together with three elder sisters in the faith, three aunties from the Bible who are going to help us see some of the ways that loving God is responsive and holistic and costly. You ready? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. So loving God is responsive because God loved you first. God loved you first. There's a wonderful uh, passage in 1 John, which is one of the little letters uh, at the, toward the end of the Bible, where the uh, beloved disciple John, who knew Jesus, is at the end of his life, and he's writing about what does it mean to love God. So 1 John 4, 10 and 19, and this is what he says. This is love, not that we loved God, that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So the beloved disciple John, old man, older even than I am today, and that's something, right? Old man, he's thinking about loving God, and he, he sets about defining what it means to love God, and what he focuses on is that it doesn't matter nearly so much how or whether we love God. What actually matters, what is actually John's focus in this little letter is that God loved us first. It's, it's as almost as if we, we say, love you, God, and he says, ha, loved you first. In the most playful and positive of ways. So in some mysterious way, this might help Relax us a little bit about getting it just right. No, instead we can rest in the knowledge that God loved us first. Think about it. Maybe you're familiar with some of these examples from scripture. After Adam and Eve fell into sin, God loved them first before they ever had a chance to figure out what to do with all of their shame and loss. God sought them out in the garden. Adam, where are you? God loved first. And when Israel was lost in captivity and slavery under the oppression of empire, God remembered them and loved them first and sent Moses to deliver them. When Saul was violently, did I just lose the mic? We good? Okay. When Saul was violently persecuting Christians and helping send them to their deaths, God loved him first by knocking him off his feet and appearing to him on the Damascus road and audibly speaking to him when we all were lost in the captivity of sin and brokenness. The beloved disciple John says, God loved us first by sending his son as an atoning sacrifice for all our wrongs. 
Because God loves us first, he actually gives us the capacity, the ability, and the curiosity to respond to his initiatives. So God is constantly at work to allow us to experience this love that he sends our ways. And for theology nerds like me and maybe Pastor Peter and Pastor David and some of your other pastors, for theology nerds like me, when we're talking about God loving us first, there's a word it's called prevenient grace. Basically, prevenient grace means God loved us first and goes ahead of us and gives us the ability to respond. And God is constantly dreaming up new ways to capture our attention and our hearts. Sometimes loving the invisible God means just paying attention and noticing to how he's been busy loving us first. What do I mean? Well, let's go to Auntie Lydia. You met Lydia last week, those of you who were able to uh, experience the message through Pastor Sunita. We're going to talk a little bit more about Lydia this week. She was a successful business owner and leader. She was an immigrant from Thyatira in Asia. She had immigrated over to uh, the European continent. She was the first convert to Christ on the continent of Europe. She became a leader in the church, and in fact, the church in Philippi met in her house. There is so much in her story that demonstrates this notion that God is constantly the one who loves us first, and our job is simply to respond to what we notice. So Acts 16 tells her whole story, and it's great. Uh, In the interest of time, we're going to just focus on these verses from uh, the center of the story. So Acts 16, 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us, the missionary team, to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. It's a great story. But if you go back up into verses 6 through 13, before the passage I read, you start to get to see what I mean when I say Lydia shows us how God loved us first and we respond. You see, Paul and his ministry colleagues kept wanting to go somewhere. They wanted to go to Asia Minor, but they kept running into obstacles. They were traveling and they had a goal in mind and they thought they were headed there, but at every single turn, they couldn't get there and they had to go here or here or here. So in verse six, it literally says in scripture, they were kept by the Holy Spirit from doing that. And so they did this. And then in verse seven, they tried to enter this region, but the spirit of Jesus, says the word of God, would not allow them. So they went to another region. In verse eight, Paul's trying to get some sleep, like, Lord, what are you doing? And in his rest, God gives him a vision of a man from Macedonia another region entirely from where they were trying to go. It was across the Aegean Sea. And in this vision, this man from Macedonia was saying, come over here and help us. So finally, they have direction. Yes. So verses 10 and 11, they get on a boat. They sail and land in Macedonia. And they wonder, 
Now what? So they figure, let's go to the major city of the area. So they went to Philippi. And they're there for several days. And guess what? No man from Macedonia. Like, there's, there, nothing's happening. So on the Sabbath, they figure, let's go to the place where people go for prayer when there's uh, no dedicated synagogue. And so they go to the river. Still no man from the vision. Hmm. Meanwhile, this successful cloth merchant, Lydia, was meeting regularly at this outdoor place of prayer. And the fact that it was an outdoor place of prayer means that there were not enough Jewish men to have a minion or a synagogue meeting. And so you would go to the river to pray. And Lydia went down to the river on Sabbath instead of working. Did she go every Sabbath? We don't know. Did she lead the prayer community down by the river? We don't know. All we know is that she was a seeker. She worshiped God, and she was in the right place at the right time when these traveling preachers from clear across the Aegean Sea on another continent with a different agenda came looking for a man from Macedonia, and here she was. You gotta love this about God. He was after her and was rearranging and blocking and moving and reconstructing so that the people who could tell her the story of Jesus would get to her at just the right time. It's a beautiful story of God loving her first. And then the Lord opened her heart, the word says, to respond to what God was doing. And wow, did she respond. She went all in. Everything she did after the hearing the gospel for the first time in its fullness was a response to God's love. She shared the gospel with the rest of her household, and they came to faith and were baptized. She persuaded the traveling missionaries to stay with her in her home, a woman where no man is mentioned that would have been very countercultural, but they did it because she persuaded them. Her insistent hospitality suddenly turned her house into the hub for the conversion of the city of Philippi. Paul would later write the letter to the Philippians, which was the community that built around Lydia's home. Did the church grow over the time that Paul and Silas were thrown in prison in Philippi? We don't know, but the end of all we hear about her is in verse 40, listen to this. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. So I think the thing grew in her responding to God's love, even just a matter of weeks. It started with Lydia responding to the extraordinary love of God poured out on her in the first place. How about us? How about us? Loving God starts with recognizing and remembering the ways in which God has poured out God's love on us first. And this could be, yes, as big as remembering that he sent his son to die for us and cover all of our brokenness and sin and wrong. It could be something as small as the person in front of you at Starbucks paying for your coffee. How has God orchestrated events 
and circumstances to bless you, to love you, and to remind you that he loves you. And how can you respond? God loves you first. God loves me first. We get to love him back by noticing and remembering and actively responding to his love. So, loving God is responsive because God loves us first. And next, loving God is holistic. Holistic, so we get to bring our full selves. In Matthew uh, chapter 22, verses 36 through 38, we read this in the words of Jesus himself. Teacher, someone asked, what's the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Heart, soul, mind. Other gospels add strength. Jesus, of course, as a good observant Jew, was quoting the Deuteronomy 6.5 passage that frames our time together this morning. Hear, O Israel, the great Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, the Lord alone is God. You shall love the Lord with God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. These words in Hebrew and then in Aramaic when Jesus quoted them, heart, soul, mind, strength, they don't map really well like onto the English words. So it's not like we can parse body parts and sort of ask exactly where is the soul located. It's not the way it works. Let's just say that what it means is we bring our full selves to the experience of loving God. We, we hold nothing back. Bring your full self, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because loving God is holistic. So have you ever loved something, but like not with your whole self? Take chocolate, for instance. I love chocolate. I love chocolate, and, and depending on the need, I love chocolate with my whole heart. But less often with my mind, because I don't overthink my chocolate, to be honest, right? Soul strength, I mean, it depends. Maybe dark chocolate, I might, you know. But there are definitely aspects of my love for chocolate in which I hold back parts of myself when it comes to my investment in this divine creation. <laughs> but loving God is meant to be holistic. What might it look like to bring our full, authentic selves to loving God? Let's sit at the feet for a few moments of our elder sister in the Lord, Hannah, and see how our Auntie Hannah can help us see what it's like to bring our full selves into a holistic relationship 
with God. We meet Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, chapters 1 and 2, and her story actually marks a turning point in the history of the people of Israel. This woman's faith and her wholehearted love and devotion to God leads to the birth of Samuel, who was the last judge and the first prophet, who ushered in the era of kings, all through this mama who raised him well. Hannah, before Samuel shows up, was barren. She could not have children. And ironically, this is true for many women in the lineage and story of the people of Israel and of Jesus's heritage to demonstrate the power of God to give them children, although they were barren. And while that's great for us in retrospect to say, oh, cool, you know, God, were, it wasn't so great for Hannah at the time. Being childless was deeply painful. It was small comfort in a society to know that God was seeing you when everyone around you was mocking you for your barrenness, including people in her own household. So Hannah couldn't have babies, and this was devastating. But she was a devout Jew, so the Shema was echoing as a music in her heart. She was going to love the Lord her God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength anyway. But let's take a look at how she lived into the command to love the Lord with all of her heart, soul, and strength to bring her full self to this relationship. So I'm going to read this passage. I think it's also going to be up on the screen. And then I'm going to ask you for some observations from the rim, right? So pay attention to two very simple things. What did Hannah do? What did Hannah say? That's all. What did Hannah do? What did Hannah say? And then I'm going to ask for your responses. Okay, you ready? So 1 Samuel 1, 9 through 13. What did Hannah do? What did Hannah say? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. Okay, talk back. What did Hannah do? What did Hannah say? Simple observations. What did you notice? She prayed. Great. What else? She stood up. Her body. Yeah, what else? She wept. Yes. Someone over here. She made a vow. Great. What else? Good, right? She was a very active participant in this story. And through her, we see that she takes the initiative. She went up to the temple to worship. That's corporate prayer. She stood up, as you have said. This is a posture of prayer, very common in those days. But it involved her body. She wept. This involved her emotions, her heart. She made a vow. 
This is her will, her mind, her words. Her lips were moving, meaning she was praying privately and personally. Friends, the priest wasn't used to the sight of people in personal prayer. He thought she was drunk. Okay? So she was truly engaged in an honest, personal, heartbroken lament, and eventually God answered her prayer and gave her a son, and she gave deeply of her offering of her son. She keeps her promise to God, even though it must have been very painful. My husband Jeff and I now have a son and a daughter-in-law in Chile. It's 7,000 miles away, and now we've got Vicente. It's very hard to love someone who's so far away, and yet she willingly gave him up. In, in chapter 2, go home and read it. She writes this incredible poem and song. It's filled with joy and faith and unwavering confidence and poetic rhythms in the full sovereignty of God and the great reversals of fortune that reside in God and God alone. In all of these ways, Hannah demonstrates a full-on bringing of her full self. Nothing held back. Tears, laughter, sorrow, joy, personal prayer, corporate prayer, poetry, song, keeping promises, raising her son in a godly way. God loves it when we love him from different angles. What can we learn from Hannah? about bringing our full selves, something we, we may wish to try on our, on our own. How can we grow towards showing up with our full self in our relationship with God? One of the books that has helped me, it's an older book, but it's a book called Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. Anybody ever hear of that book? Yeah, it's an older book. Yes, a couple of us, good. Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. It's basically kind of like a love languages for your spiritual journey. So different ways that you can love God, that people love God. And we have natural sort of love languages in our relationship with God, and then we have new ones that we can try. And so really briefly, Sacred, um, Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. Here are the nine ways he highlights. Which one would you like to try? So the first one is people who love God in nature. This is a big one for me, mountains and water. I need to be near mountains or water. And loving God in nature is something that uh, people do. Or loving God with the senses. What does this mean? This is through smell and sound and sights. Uh, some of our uh, Eastern uh, Orthodox sisters and brothers use icons, pictures of sacred uh, to help us remind us. So loving God with the senses is one way to try. Through traditions or liturgy or symbol, such as praying the Apostles' Creed, as we prayed here this morning, and as Christians all around the globe in every possible tribe and language pray and have been praying for thousands of years. Traditions, liturgy, symbol. How about this one? In solitude or silence. Getting away and just shutting off the devices and loving God by being by yourself with him. People love God through activism and justice and getting involved in righting the systemic wrongs so pervasively at work in our world. People love God by loving others. We see this in your Caring Hands ministry. 
I heard with joy about some of the wonderful things that Mama Deborah and her power team uh, loves God. She's loving God through, by loving others, those folks uh, who serve with her as well. Some people love God with celebration. <laughs> Party. It's good. God loves celebration and we can love him if that is our particular love language. Through contemplation and prayer, breathe, the breathe prayer, uh, rhythms and quiet kinds of things, even that we saw your students doing on the screen. And the ninth one, and one that is actually very, very important in my spiritual journey, loving the Lord with your mind. One of my uh, spiritual love languages is learning. And when I was at a very, very dry place in my life, I knew I needed something to love God with. So I went back to school, and I'm in a doctoral program now. And my dear, patient, loving husband's like, can't you just read a book? <laughs> no, I really need to love God with all more than that. So loving God with your mind. So some of you, may it may be study, maybe exploring a topic that brings um, your love of God alive. So which one of these would you like to try? Bring your full self in your relationship with God. Get creative about it. This is the season of Lent. What if you pick one of these, and between now and Easter, during the season of Lent, you just kind of practice one of them. See what bub bub bubbles up. Or if one of them is like, yeah, that is totally me, then dive in deep to one you already know is what works for you. Loving God is holistic. So bring your full, authentic self. Okay, so loving God is holistic, as I've just said, responsive, which is where we started, because he loves us first. And finally, loving God is costly. But he is worth it. Jesus, in uh, really the last moments of his life with his friends, talked about what it means uh, to love him. And in John chapter 14, uh, verses 15 through 21, this is what Jesus says. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. The one who loves me is the one who has my commands and keeps them. Loving God is costly. It calls for our full conformity to the character and justice and holiness and goodness of God it calls for the O word, obedience. This is not a cheap grace that we're talking about. God invites us on a journey of obedience regardless of the cost. And the invitation to love God is the invitation to obey God. And you know this, right? Think of the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey. Dang, 
everything I have commanded you to do. Obedience. It means doing things his way, not my way. During the pandemic, uh, whatever part of the pandemic we're in now, I like to put it in the past tense, but anyway, during the pandemic, I watched a show on Netflix last year called School of Chocolate. Yes, another chocolate illustration. We may need an intervention, but that's for after service, right? So, and this School of Chocolate, the master chocolatier was Amory Guichon. And the students in the show, their one job was to imitate what he did and like try to do it themselves, right? So they were learning from him. They were his apprentices in everything to do with chocolate. It was wonderful to watch, but I was very hungry throughout the entire show, I'm not really sure. But you see this idea of apprenticing their lives to the master chocolatier, apprentice is a lovely word. Far earlier than a horrible television show of a similar name, it's a lovely word from back in the day when people would decide to learn a trade such as silversmithing or woodworking or leather making or book printing or chocolate making. And the only and best way to do it was to move to where the master was and be 24-7 with the master of the craft you were trying to learn. Jesus' first followers apprenticed their whole lives to Jesus, and it was costly. Now, unlike the students in the School of Chocolate who had a less than perfect human example in Omarie Guichon, Jesus' followers, and that includes us, encounter a perfectly whole, emotionally healthy, just loving master. In him, we find the embodiment of love, personified, righteous, holy, a friend of those on the margins. And his first followers said, we want to be like that. And so they apprenticed their lives to him. They wanted to do like the master did. They wanted to think like the master. They wanted to love like the master. They wanted to kick butt. Can I say that in church? Kick butt like the master. They wanted to live life with their master. What if we think of loving Jesus more as become like becoming his apprentice than another sort of box, like a friend on Facebook, you know, box to check? Because an apprentice life is costly, but it is so worth it. Let's turn now to our final auntie in the faith who knew that loving Jesus was costly, but also so worth it. This woman is not named in scripture, but Jesus centers her story very intentionally. Let's see what we can learn from the woman with the alabaster jar. Mark 14. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. 
Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever, and this is when he centers her story, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. She has done a beautiful thing, says Jesus, of this extravagant act. And then this line that I absolutely love. She did what she could. Oh. This is all God invites us to do. To do what we can. And when we do what we can, it's beautiful to him. It's beautiful to him. Friends, it is costly to do what we can for Jesus. Our alabaster jar might break. We might find ourselves pouring out what is most precious to us in order to do what we can for Jesus. We might open our homes to Afghan refugees or look at our vacation fund money and instead donate it to relief efforts for Ukraine. Oh, we still take that rest that we need, but maybe the money goes to some other purpose. We might stand in solidarity with our black neighbors and business owners. We might speak up in fear, but with conviction to stop Asian hate. People might not understand. In fact, they may rebuke us harshly. It's costly, but loving Jesus is worth it. Loving whom he commands us to love is worth it. Our neighbor, our spouse, yes, even for 42 years, ourselves, our church, our God, I love you, Jeff, our God, <laughs> we do what we can do, and this love, doing what we can do is costly. But to him, our costly love is beautiful. Instead of rebuking each other for our extravagance or giving each other a hard time for loving Jesus in a costly way, how can we encourage each other to take the costly steps of apprenticing our lives to Jesus? Perhaps in response, we, we might wish to take a, plan a time with a friend or a mentor just to listen to one another's stories of the costliness of our apprentice lives and just encourage each other. It's hard work and we need the encouragement. So friends, loving God, what might it mean for us, mere flesh and blood mortals, to love an invisible, immortal God? Loving God is responsive. Remember, he loved you first. Loving God is holistic. Bring your full self and get creative about it. And loving God is costly, but oh, is he worth it. Would you pray with me? Loving God, we thank you that never a day goes by that we are not in the center of your heart and affections. 
And Lord, we pray by the power of your spirit that you would set us free to love you responsively, holistically, and even when it's costly. In Jesus' name, amen.